Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And yep, I'll admit it, I'm in Davos this week for a special early summer edition of the World Economic Forum. This is the place they say millionaires come to hear billionaires tell them what the middle class is thinking. In my experience, you very rarely come away from Davos feeling more optimistic. The talk here was of Ukraine, inflation, and the risk of a global food crisis. We have some of that rather gloomy talk coming up with selected highlights from a session I moderated featuring big cheeses like the European Trade Commissioner and the Director General of the World Trade Organization. We also have some very clear thinking on the future of global trade from the brilliant economist Richard Baldwin. But what you never get in Davos is a sense of what any of this feels like at ground level. So let me start this week's show with this report from Texas by our US economy reporter Katya Dmitrieva. Midland, Texas is not the kind of place you'd expect high prices, but it's the city with the highest inflation in the United States. For the past six months, the Consumer Price Index for Midland, which tracks how much residents pay for everyday things, has hovered around 10%. That's above even the national average. The city in West Texas is small. About 120,000 people give or take. It's remote surrounded by oil fields and almost a five-hour drive to the nearest major city. These two things, a limited labor pool and remote location, are sending prices skyrocketing here and in other smaller cities in the South and Midwest. And that's on top of the supply chain disruptions plaguing every region of the U.S. right now. Melinda Hernandez lives in South Midland. She's currently planning a high school graduation party for her son, usually a big event for her Hispanic family. This year, it's going to be different, thanks to inflation. Shopping for his food items, you know, just seeing that it's doubled from when I did the party for my first son. I would get less for more. Does that make sense? So it's just, it's crazy to me. Hernandez lost her job at an energy services company in March. The industry hasn't picked back up, so demand remains low for administrative workers like her. Service sector wages also lag far behind other industries. While she's getting paid $10 an hour delivering pizzas at night, less than half her old wage, everything else is going up in price. Her electricity bill has doubled. Food prices are so high she had to tap a local nonprofit and church for help. And gas prices have been skyrocketing. Make sure my electric bill is paid and I have a roof over my head and that's all that matters right now. 
Inflation was also on the mind of policymakers this week in Davos, Switzerland. Gathered at the World Economic Forum for rounds of meetings, seminars, and unofficial hallway discussions. But it really, to me, comes down to inflation. We may see prices even going higher, being much more volatile. Raising interest rates is not going to solve the problem of inflation. Taming inflation is one of the top global challenges in the post-pandemic economy. But there's a big gap between monetary policy and the realities on the ground in places like Midland. While it's the best tool the Federal Reserve has, raising interest rates doesn't address the problems of high food and gas prices and the drivers of that, the war in Ukraine and supply chain disruptions. The West Texas Food Bank near Midland has more than 400 cars lined up each Wednesday for free food. The line grows each week. It's the longest since the darkest days of the pandemic in 2020. Libby Campbell, the president, says food costs are increasing because of fertilizer prices and how hard it's getting to transport food into the region. Increased checks at the border with Mexico means lots of food is going to waste as it sits in line increasing prices in the region. It's just the cost of what things, you know, are to live every day, and it's truly causing us stress on our community. The Federal Reserve and other central banks are raising interest rates, but it remains to be seen how much that'll help in Midland. So there's lots of interesting people here at Davos with grand theories about the world. But Professor Richard Baldwin is someone who actually has facts and experience uh, to back up his theories. Professor of International Economics at the Graduate Institute in Geneva and an author of several excellent books on different aspects of globalization, which we've discussed in the past on Stephanomics. Richard, this has been one of those uh, forums where people are getting into all the conversations about the end of globalization. You're someone who's charted the future of globalization in a, from a particular perspective. What do you think about everything that's been said this week? The basic narrative is globalization is dying. There, there were some recent op-ed pieces in the Financial Times. It's not, there's a whole session here, is it dying or is it deglobalization? I think it's just completely wrong. People are misthinking what globalization means because they're stuck in the sort of 19th century view that trade means goods crossing borders. Nowadays, if you write anything with trade, they stick a container ship at the top of the article. And, the there, and there are a lot of container ships queuing up there, around the world there, at the moment. There are, there are. <laughs> but uh, since about uh, the mid-2000s, uh, the trade in goods to GDP ratio has peaked and is declining but the trade of services to GDP is continuing to soar. So my idea is that fundamentally, globalization is driven by arbitrage. And there's arbitrage in goods, that was what we've had in the past. There's arbitrage of services, which is just starting right now. People taking advantage of differences in prices and then sort of trading those away. Exactly, it's an arbitrage on wages. So it's essentially working from home when home is abroad. But if home is Bogota, $5 an hour is a middle-class living. 
If you work 2,000 hours a year for $5, that's 10,000. And in most countries, $10,000 a year is a middle-class wage. So instead of having your receipts checked against expense claims in New York or London, you offshore to Bogota and have it done for much cheaper and you integrate that way. So that kind of service, and it's important to point out that this is what we call intermediate services, not final services, because final services are very regulated, but all the inputs, if you will, the service value chain is not regulated. So what kind of thing, just in terms of, so people can make the distinction in their heads. So so for example, uh, if you're an architect to do a building in Switzerland, you need a Swiss uh, diploma. But to design the toilet blocks or decide how thick the windows will be, that could all be outsourced to India or, or uh, Kenya. And it's the architect in Switzerland who's in charge of making sure that it's good. But there are no formal regulations and barriers there. So it's only a question of whether this architect can work together closely enough with people in low-wage countries to make everything cheaper. So that's, that's what the whole what sometimes called business processing outsourcing is intermediate services. KPO, knowledge process outsourcing, is also that way. And a lot of the big multinationals do service sector, uh, shared service centers to do it. Um, There's also these online freelance platforms, which will give you a very good idea of what's going on. It's like eBay, but for services. And that was something, I remember, you know, the the big book that you wrote uh, at the last time that we spoke was about the power of that, of AI, um, and even people who are people being able to do these jobs remote in a far flung country who don't have English as their second language, you know, as you got the as you have the machine translation get better and better, that opens right. up that whole market. Yes, exactly. In the nineteen nineties, it was low skilled low low skilled workers walking into factories. Now it's going to be low wage workers working into our walking into our offices. So that I must say that was one of my better calls. <laughs> uh, I did not know COVID was coming. But I was telling people about this telemigration, opening up the door to globalization and offshoring. And I used to have to show videos of people working, teleworking. Literally, nobody, like you're, especially in Europe, they go, you can't do that from home. And now we all do. So essentially, yeah. we've had a five to 10 year advance in the ability to make remote teams in the service sector work together. So the ability to do this is exploding. But anyways, the basic facts are that Trade in services has grown two or three times faster than trade in goods. So it is a simple matter of calculation that trade in services is the future of trade. And I guess it's also the case that some of this, if it's, if it's digital transfers of services, it won't, in, it won't potentially show up in a lot of these traditional statistics. Even the services trade, you right. might find that you're not capturing it yeah. enough. I think that that is really going to be the wave. The other thing to, to, to say about the statistics is they're terrible. They are absolutely terrible. They were essentially designed to track financial transactions, and they were held by the central bank. So they're, they're called the extended balance of payment statistics. So the central bank would find an international financial transaction, and if it didn't pass through customs, they would be pulling their hair out as to where to stick it. And the central banks, without thinking anything about statistical analysis, put together a whole bunch of stuff. Just to give you a very, one of my favorite examples is one of the bigger slices that has been growing quite quickly. It's called uh, information and communication um, services. And in there, they stick the utility bits of payments for telephones and all the Indian IT offshore soft- software. As if the utility 
had anything to do with the software. If you wanted to do jobs or policy, it's, and, and many countries don't separate them out. So it, it's really not fit for purpose. And it's one of the things we're just going to have to get done right because 80, 90 percent in the rich countries work in the service sector and will be affected by this. But we can't, we don't even have the basic statistics to say how much. So that it, it, the statistics are really, really disappointing. But no matter what you do, you still see it climbing. Now, an, another one I've been exploring is to see if we can think about the data flows for which there's a little bit better data as a proxy for services. Because you can, I mean, if you, if you think about it, it's hard to imagine data crossing border that's not somehow related to somebody making money in a service. And uh, so I, I don't think it's a terrible proxy. And although that we don't have very good data for that, at least you can see how steeply it's rising. And if you take uh, that as an indication of some service being sold across some border, it's enormous. That, can I just do say parenthetically, um, there's nobody in charge of measuring data flows in the world. Believe that. You should do another podcast on that. Mm. There is, they, I, I was... Uh, talking to people at the OECD and the International Telecommunication Union, there's no international organization that keeps track of it. And there's a couple private sector firms who trace the, like the bandwidth, not what actually goes through, but the bandwidth. But obviously there's a computer or a whole bunch of computers which have a precise data on where it's going, when it goes, et cetera, like that. But nobody in the world gathers it. And everybody says data is the world's future. Nobody's gathering data. I have a funny feeling that uh, you could talk to the Googles of this world and you would find there was, they had quite a lot of this data. They might not find it useful uh, to share. Let me just make a separate point. The first breakfast two days ago, I went to Microsoft Cafe and Brad Smith was there, president of Microsoft, and uh, the Ian Bremmer, who is the, the famous international relations guys. And we were talking of, about Ukraine, of course. And uh, the uh, presenter said... Uh, you know, the attack was, uh, was hybrid to start with, and it started, you know, at the same time as the war. And Brad raised his hand and said, no, it started 12 hours before the war because Microsoft monitors all the systems around the world, so they knew when the attack was happening in real time. And right next to him was the woman who was the head of the cyber defense of the United States. And they, they cyber defense looks to IT companies to tell them about the cyber attacks that are happening. So you're absolutely right. It's the Googles, Amazon, Microsoft. Web Service, uh, and Microsoft who have mm. the data. Mm. Well, just going back on, on Ukraine, because everything you said is, is very compelling, particularly from the standpoint of, of businesses who are thinking about how to organize their work um, across countries and just how to do it the most efficiently. In the conversations that there have been in Davos, there's been a big focus on new divisions between countries. You know, if the world does seem increasingly divided between the sort of US and Europe on the one hand and a few other democracies and potentially China, Russia and countries that are at least not wanting to, 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 to be separated from them. Those kind of geopolitical forces, how likely is it, do you think, that that will affect the pattern of business relationships and even the ability to do this kind of integration? Well, potentially long run, but one of the things I have been doing recently that, that's beyond my book is trying to develop measures of foreign exposure of supply chains together with an economist at the Bank of England, Rebecca Freeman. 
And uh, so we use this, these input, world input-output tables to try and figure out how much you're actually buying from China. And one of the amazing things we found is that you're buying probably two or three times more than you thought you were because everything you're buying from anyone has Chinese, has Chinese inputs, inputs into it. So we, we, on the U.S. auto industry, it looks like they depend upon 2% of the gross inputs come from China. If you do the whole calculation, the Lian TF, as they call it, the roundabout, it's about 20%. Wow. So they're going to have a hard time unscrambling this omelet. So they talk about uh, disengaging with China and stuff, but I think that's mostly talk. You know, there'll be a few sectors where they'll, you know, semiconductors, maybe medical uh, supplies and things like that. But the vast majority, if Matt, the, the truth is, is that China is the OPEC of industrial inputs for the entire world. And you can't shut OPEC off, at least not very, very quickly. So that, I, and who, who was it saying this morning? It was uh, the, um, um, I, th- I think it was the, the head of the American Import Export Bank who was saying there's all this geostrategic tensions. But actually, the United States exports to China this year are as high as they ever have been. And U.S. imports from China have been as high as they ever have been. So it, it seems like the businesses have not got the memo that they're <laughs> supposed to be separating everybody. And, so, and, and just given how much of the world's manufacturing capacity is in China now and how specialized they are, you know, let's, basically all socks are made in China, unless there's some sort of, you know, your mother knit them or something. <laughs> there's, because there's a whole village that makes socks. And nobody else in the world will set up that village to make socks just because Biden says, you know, we should uh, separate. So that, that's, uh, I, I find, I don't think that, I think the disengagement's happening slowly and there's a sort, in the digital world, it's already happened and will probably uh, exaggerate. But in the physical world, especially manufactured goods, I think it will be very, very hard to unscramble that omelet. China's global trade share had actually gone up quite significantly since COVID. And in this whole period that we've been talking about the accelerated deglobalization, and even with all the supply chain issues and everything else, they have increased their share of global trade. Final question for you, Richard. I've got to do a session with the head of the WTO, and uh, I should probably get some questions from you, uh, the best questions to ask them. In the world that you've described, it doesn't seem like there's much of a role for this traditional world trade organization and those kind of trade agreements? Well, I think the days of traditional trade agreements are over, but actually the WTO has moved beyond the old big rounds things, where the old days it was everything had to be agreed before anything was agreed and everybody had to agree with everything. But my, my song right now is that we really need the WTO to get the clout and the attention of heads of state because the great challenges of our time, climate change above all, will not happen unless trade goes on. So let me break that down. Mitigation will require technology to move from a handful of countries to the entire rest of the world. And that technology is generally embedded in goods, services, investment, and intellectual property rights, all of which need to cross borders. And if it's going to get paid for, because it's not going to all be done on charity, there has to be lots more trade going back the other way, potentially trade and services, for example. So if we fall into the world where this this disagreements over commercial matters breaks down the trading system, we will not get a climate rescue. So I call it the WTO rising imperative. And we absolutely need G7, G20 leaders to say, We need this 
to solve humanity's problems. Just to take a very specific one, food. If you look at the IPCC report and the FAA report, the, we are going to have an extra billion people in places which increasingly can't grow their staple crop because there's not enough water or heat. So you have three options. Either we do more trade in food and the technology to allow them to do it, or they die, or they move. All, the only one of those that's acceptable is more trade. And if we get into a world where, where there's a sort of breakdown, U.S.-China spills over, nobody's cooperating, the rules aren't respected, that won't happen. So it's, I think it's, it's time to start realizing that fixing the world's problems means moving things from where they're abundant to where they're scarce, and in particular, technology. And that though technology, which is the answer to basically all of our challenges in the future, will require a well-functioning system. So I hope they'll start to think of the WTO like the WHO, which we actually needed during the COVID. It has, it has its own problems, but nobody's thinking about the WHO where you send some ambassadors and trade ministers to haggle over commercial disputes. We realize that these, this organization was critical to saving hundreds of millions of lives. Well, I'm going to be talking to the head of the World Trade Organization. I will make check in, see whether she's ready for that ride. Thank you very much, Richard Baldwin. Thank you. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. Now, straight after that chat with Richard Baldwin, I did have the pleasure of leading a conversation about the future of global trade with not only the Director General of the World Trade Organization, Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, but also the Indian Commerce Minister, Piyush Guyal, and Ryan Peterson, Chief Executive of the global logistics company Flexport. You'll hear all of them in a minute. But I started the panel by asking Valdis Dombrovskis, the European Commissioner for Trade and Executive Vice President for the Economy, about the European Union's response to the invasion of Ukraine. Specifically, given the internal tensions around further limiting energy imports from Russia, I asked him whether the European Union was reaching the limit of what it could do to punish Russia. Minister Royal, you won't be surprised that I will ask you a, a question on this topic. Uh, India's made it very clear that it needs to buy cheap oil from Russia. It's buying more uh, oil, discounted Russian oil, and it buys more Russian weapons than any country in the world. The US has been understanding about India's position, has said they're sort of playing the long game because they believe ultimately that the US is the key strategic partner for India. So can I just ask you, what steps are you taking over the longer term to reduce dependent on, dependence on Russia, even as you buy more from Russia right now? I think uh, we've been very clear from the beginning that uh, dialogue is the way forward. We must sort out this dispute. It's doing nobody any good. And it's important that, we, that all the 
concerned countries and the neighbors find a solution to this very, very unfortunate conflict. In terms of India's own dependence on oil from Russia, we have never traditionally been a very large importer of uh, petroleum products from Russia. In fact, uh, on an earlier occasion, our foreign minister has clarified that we buy less petroleum products from Russia in a month than what is consumed or bought by the European countries in an afternoon. So therefore, I think uh, any suggestion that India is increasing imports from Russia or is anyway contributing to the uh, situation certainly doesn't stand scrutiny. Over the years, they've been uh, a friend of India and uh, we believe that the right way would be to find an amicable solution. In terms of uh, the long term, India has always looked at diversified sources for our petroleum requirements. But in the current situation, when uh, inflation is at an all-time high, it has caused severe stress to people all over the world. The European Union and other countries in Europe continue to buy far, far more larger quantities than India has ever even thought of buying or will ever buy. So I don't think uh, at all India at this point of time is uh, in any way responsible for the petroleum exports of Russia. Having said that, I must also place on record that I was personally advised that there is no sanction on petroleum production, uh, petroleum goods or food grain procurement from Russia and no sanctions have been placed on that uh, by senior leaders of the coalition uh, which has put in the sanctions. So I think uh, India is well within the current uh, framework which has been designed by the uh, countries who have put put in the sanctions. Dr. Ngozi, uh, obviously one of the very worrying uh, counter effects or side effects of the crisis in Ukraine is this growing fear of a food crisis and food short, global food shortages. What, what practically are you thinking about in your position to help governments respond to this crisis? Is there anything that the WTO can do? Well, thank you. Certainly, the food crisis is a real worry. And it's not just about this year. I think it might be about next year, or even beyond that. Um, and the reason I'm saying that is if countries are not able to get fertilizer um, to, to plant the next crop, those that need fertilizer, then yields are going to be lower. There will be less supply in the world across the board of all types of uh, grains and food. Um, if we are not able to evacuate the 25 million tons or thereabout of Ukrainian grain that is presently stored, um, and the harvest is next month for another 25 million tons, then that's going to be really, really difficult for the world. So I'm saying that this food crisis is uh, real, and uh, we must find solutions. Of course, if the war stop. That would be the quickest and best solution for everyone. Uh, but absent that, if we had open corridors open on the Black Sea to evacuate some of Ukrainian grain, that would help. If we don't, 
find solutions. Of course, the, the ones countries that would suffer would be the, uh, the countries, uh, the poorer countries of, of the world. Now, at WTO, uh, what are we trying to do? One is not to exacerbate the problem uh, by having export restrictions or prohibitions of, of members, because that tends to uh, take the prices, uh, make for more volatility, and, and, and you know, prices can spike if we, if we do that. Um, so our members, the message to them is to try to restrain, although it's not against WTO rules, uh, um, if you have that, for, there's a security clause that allows that to be done, but it has to be temporary, uh, proportionate and transparent and reported to the WTO. Um, but so far now, uh, we, we have about um, 22 members who have export restrictions, and the idea is for that to be lower so we don't exacerbate the problem. I think our members have taken that on board. Um, uh, the second issue that we're looking at is, of course, how to multiply the supply on the world market. So any country that has additional grains uh, that they can put on the world market, we're encouraging that very much to be the case. Can I come back to you, Commissioner, very briefly, just to ask, are you talking to Russia about creating solidarity lanes in the Black Sea to allow grain shipments from Ukraine? Uh, well, uh, uh, first of all, uh, uh, in uh, this uh, conflict, we need to be clear uh, who is aggressor, who is uh, victim. And it's uh, Russia's uh, uh, unprovoked and illegal aggression against Ukraine, which is uh, creating uh, the uh, problem. So, uh, correspondingly, we are engaging with Ukraine, uh, trying to help Ukraine to deal with this uh, situation. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, there are discussions on uh, uh, different ways how the grain shipments can be done. So, already now, we are ramping up the capacity to do it, and the shipment is already happening uh, through the land corridors, uh, through uh, Poland, through Romania, and from those uh, ports, but clearly it's not a replacement. Uh, we're also assessing other land options to get to other ports, uh, but uh, uh, clearly uh, it's not able to replace in a short term uh, the, uh, um, uh, 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 the uh, sea routes uh, uh, and, and the fact that cur currently Russia is uh, blocking uh, Ukrainian ports and this uh, uh, export of grain is not uh, possible. And in meanwhile, of course, we are see seeing other tendencies that uh, Russia is uh, looting Ukrainian uh, uh, grain from uh, uh, occupied territories, it's burning down Ukrainian food storages in other territories, it's destroying other uh, Ukrainian uh, agricultural uh, infrastructure and uh, equipment. So uh, clearly there is a deliberate action of Russia to create these global food security issues. I guess that's why I wonder why we think, why it seems possible that you might have those, that safe passage when the Russians have made clear that they are willing to sustain an enormous amount of humanitarian collateral damage. Well, that's why we're working on uh, different directions. Of course, if there is a way to open those uh, uh, corridors for Ukrainian grain exports uh, uh, through the Black Sea from Ukrainian ports, excellent. In parallel, as I said, we are working on other land routes, beefing up capacity, simplifying procedures, uh, administrative procedures, customs procedures, both for Ukrainian imports to the EU and for transit to uh, other countries. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Ryan Peterson, what are you seeing when you look at supply chains, when you look at the, the collateral damage in the trading system that businesses are dealing with every day from this crisis and from the other snarl-ups that we've seen? Well, we've seen um, the last seven or eight years that you've had a, almost every single year an increasing level of disruption in global trade. Um, starting, you can go back to 2015 when we had a strike on the west coast of the United States and you couldn't import anything into, into the United States. Uh, we may have another one this summer. The contract is up for renegotiation in July. Um, you've had 2016, we had the cheapest ocean freight of all time. Everyone likes to talk about expensive ocean freight. 2016 was the cheapest ocean freight probably in the history of humankind. Uh, great for importers and exporters, terrible for the asset owners. They almost went, in fact, Hanjin did go bankrupt, uh, the Korean ocean carrier. 17, 18, 19, we had trade wars. Uh, 2020, we had a pandemic um, which caused a collapse in purchase orders, and then the worst port congestion that we've seen all over the world, and trade has never been more difficult. And I think it's an interesting moment to ask, is globalization going to continue? Are we going to be able to continue to trade, or is it going to fray? And um, our system depends on peace, rule of law. Um, we've, we've built like an incredible amount of prosperity off of the global trading system that uh, is at risk right now. And it's... Um, terrible to see the human implications of that and it has me very very concerned because it uh we look at what happened with the arab spring and all these government um really anarchy almost in the middle east and that was really the result of high food prices and i i don't know how to make predictions because my predictions have been wrong the last few years uh, but i'm still willing to do it and i predict you're going to see similar levels of crisis across any food importing nation especially the poor ones that don't have fossil fuels uh and that has me very very concerned dr ngozi actually mentioned the question about uh food security and potential what might be considered um food protectionism um so there is a question how does india intend to prevent its recent wheat export ban from negatively affecting food security in developing countries. And I see you've also limited sugar exports. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because there's a lot of misinformation going around the place. Until two years ago, India had no exports of wheat at all. Two years ago, we had a nominal surplus of 2 million tons, which is barely 1%, only 1% of global wheat trade that we had as a surplus, which we allowed to be exported. Last year, this year, starting April, our estimate was that we would produce 111 million tons, against which our domestic requirement and consumption is about 105 million tons. So we thought we would have about 6-7 million tons again, which we could export. Unfortunately, there was a huge climate problem. We had a heat wave in most parts of North India, which is in public domain. Most people, I'm sure, know about it, due to which the wheat got shriveled and our production fell significantly. In fact, Dr. Ngozi feels it has fallen even more than what we estimate, due to which we would actually have to draw from our food security reserves to even ensure price stability 
and food security of the people of India. In this situation, from 1st April to 10th of May, in 40 days, our wheat exports increased six times, 600% of what, it had what had happened in the 40 days last year. So we saw 2 million tons go in only 40 days. And the speed with which it was going, we would have had a crisis in our own country for food stability, food security, and pricing. And therefore, it was an imperative that we regulate what is being exported. Even now, we have left the window open for countries on a government-to-government -government basis to uh, take wheat from India because we don't want the surplus wheat available, if any, to go into the hands of speculators or hoarders who then charge an arm and a leg to the less developed countries or the poorer countries who, who would need that or the vulnerable countries who would need that grain. We analyzed the exports and we found instead of Bangladesh or the less developed countries, it was actually being exported to trading centers from where they would have all the ability to manipulate prices and therefore we regulated it and therefore we believe this is a step in the right direction to ensure equitable and social distribution of any surpluses that we have. A lot of conversations that people will have been in this week in one way or another ended up with um, the fragmentation of the global economy and can global institutions still function? Do they still have a role when major members of those institutions no longer seem to be heading in the right direction? How do you make the WTO fit with a world in which people don't agree? I must compliment uh, the Director General, Ms. Uh, Ngozi, because it's a very tough job she has on her hands. I, I don't think any of us would envy her job. Nobody would like to be in that seat in the current challenging times, particularly when she has to balance the interests of the less developed or very poor countries, the developing world, which has the less, uh, the, the smaller income, the middle income, the higher income, all within the developing world, and then the very developed countries. I compliment her for her patience, for her ability to bring so many different interests on the table and persevere for a solution. All right, well, I'm sure she's very glad to have that compliment, but why don't you help her? How are you going to actually We're help all her? helping. We're all helping, and I think we've all agreed, even today, in an earlier session, to look at how a political consensus can be drawn, trying to bring equity in, with different interests on the table. Can I, can I, uh, well, thank you, Stephanie, for eliciting so much love for me. <laughs> uh, uh, it's wonderful. Um, I just want to say that, you know, as uh, Piyush mentioned, it's very difficult uh, to agree things multilaterally, and that has been plaguing the WTO, and we shouldn't make light of it. And that's why we need to find ways forward to agree some things to show that the organization can, can function. Um, but what I wanted to say is let's not take the multilateral trading system lightly. You know, people are talking a lot of fragmentation, of uh, moving away from multilateralism. In practical terms, there's a lot of geopolitical tension. But the counterfactual to having a multilateral organization, people need to look at that. It's very costly. Um, and, and, you know, only the poorer and weaker countries would suffer because if, the, if you don't have such an organization, imagine a poor country in a developing part of the world trying to have a bilateral agreement with a larger country. How do you think that will look? If you had to do that for 
almost everything, it would be very difficult. So we need that multilateralism. Lastly, some problems we have now of the global commons cannot be solved by any one country alone. And we are facing this simultaneous crisis of the global commons, which needs the kind of solidarity that a multilateral setting uh, provides. Therefore, you can't solve the pandemic on your own. You can't solve uh, uh, climate change on your own. You can't even solve food on your own because we have net food importing countries who don't have the ability to grow their own food. So we are in it together. And therefore, that's why we need to strengthen organizations like the WTO and make sure we uh, don't take it lightly about its breaking or falling apart. We, I've just noticed we've practically run out of time. So, but I, I did, there's quite a few questions to Ryan Peterson. So there are various versions of the same one, which is, can you tell us how IT can help solve some of the trade disruptions that we're seeing? Yeah, and so I run a technology company, so you probably think I'm going to talk about big data or machine learning, satellites, but actually the technology that I think is going to be the most important in the next year or two is an ancient one. We've um, actually uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, maritime insurance was invented in Rome to uh, provide security for people who were going to Egypt to get grain and bring it back to Rome. And we're going to need to find insurance solutions so that ships can go into the Black Sea in a war zone, get grain, and leave, because I don't know that the private sector alone is going to do that. I think they'll end up uh, not wanting to take that risk. If I own the ship, I don't want to lose my ship. It's too expensive. And this is where a role for, for government perhaps could come in uh, and provide some kind of a backstop of insurance, as we've seen in many other places. But I think something like that is probably the most important technology right now. Well, like many conversations this week, it's begun and ended with some aspect of the Ukraine crisis. But in the meantime, we got a bit of help, certainly a lot of love for Dr. Ngozi, um, and some explanations of, of the other elements of uh, trade policy at the moment. So thank you very much thank to all you. speakers. Well, that's it for this bumper episode of Stephanomics from the World Economic Forum. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, do please rate the show if you like it and check out the Bloomberg News website for more economic news and views on the global economy. You can also follow at economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen with support from Summer Sadi. Special thanks to Katia Dimitrieva, Professor Richard Baldwin, the World Economic Forum, Dr Ngozi Okonjo-Iwela, Minister Piyush Guyal, Brian Peterson, and Commissioner Valdis Dombrovskis. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics, and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy.